This is the E of uh, Real Estate. My name is uh, Rene Stevens. Uh, I'm your host. And today I have James Buchbinder as uh, our guest. Uh, James is an expert in uh, user behavior. He uh, advises uh, clients on multinational content strategy, cross-cultural communication and interaction uh, design. He's an advocate that the shape of a successful product is hitting inside human behavior. James advises organizations preparing for innovation of their product and service systems. When the web emerged as a mass medium, he helped pioneer some of the first online workspaces, content management systems, and also editorial strategies for real-time global publishing. He played a leading role in the creation of highly successful products and services for clients, including the United Nations, Development Program, Exxon Nobel, the City of Amsterdam, the Netherlands Council for Health and Society, and the Knowledge Center for Child and Adolescent uh, Psychiatry. For several years now, James has also been engaged as a uh, design researcher and user experience expert in urban design, mainly related to transportation. Welcome, James. Quite the list. Well, well, thank you very much for having me. I feel honored. Yeah. You um, have been uh, teaching about all these matters uh, at a couple of universities now for about, uh, I believe, 12 years. Uh, That's correct, and yes. Yes, and that makes you even a uh, more interesting uh, guest for this podcast, The E of Real Estate. Because as we both know that uh, the learning environment has a huge impact on uh, people, people who are using that uh, learning environment, uh, students and staff. And I want to explore today with you uh, uh, your perspective about uh, how the learning environment can improve uh, uh, the core business of the university, so learning and research, but also uh, health and well-being of the users. Uh, and then health in a very broad uh, way, uh, not just uh, physical health and uh, security, but also uh, um, um, mental and uh, emotional. Being a well-skilled uh, professional in user behavior and designing uh, digital interfaces and urban interaction design in the physical environment and even uh, social interaction in the form of service design. Um, how do you feel when uh, experiencing as a professor the usability of university campuses? Can you give an example that made you uh, sad and also that uh, made you very excited? Uh, oh, that's a very good question. Um, well, I've been uh, mainly, to give it some context, I have been uh, lecturing in digital design and service design related courses and methods, mainly at universities of applied sciences. I lectured for about 10 years in Rotterdam at the University of Applied Science, and I'm going on my second year now of lecturing at the Amsterdam University of Applied Science. And I've also had some occasion as a professional to inhabit other campuses in the United Kingdom and in America, the United States to some degree. So this is the background of my experiences. Um, oh, and I should mention, I'm also teaching at master level uh, on a smaller scale at a couple of universities. So your question was, um, how do I experience it? So my experiences are very much derived from those experiences, just to make it clear that I'm not attempting to generalize too broadly. However, having said that, I do think that as a person who has worked in big organizations and with big systems and services, and who has contact with other uh, lecturers and professors and students, some of my experience I do think is fairly broadly generalizable. So to answer your question, what is something that made me unhappy? Um, I think that was the first question. Yes, correct. Well, I must say that in my experience, universities that I've taught at and many others I suspect suffer from a lot of pathologies caused by top level uh, strategic and business decisions, which filter down and metastasize throughout the entire organization. And as a lecturer, 
you are continually battling systemic problems or the kind of symptoms, the effects of systemic problems, which are not something you can influence. You can live with it or not live with it. You can sometimes oppose them. Um, so something, there were several things that uh, make me, and not only me, unhappy. It's not an accident that there's such a high turnover in certain universities among the staff. One of the things is, um, well, to give you an example of a problem, the fact that for many universities, I'm putting it very bluntly here, I, I don't mean to paint everyone with a broad brush, but there are often financial incentives to let as many students as possible come in and to make as many as possible graduate. And there are also situations I've seen where a certain population is seen as a cash cow. And as a lecturer, even if no one tells you explicitly, you know through experience and through the way it's set up that if you insist on a basic quality standard of the work of the students, you will pay a terrible price. For example, um, in some of my work, rules were made without consulting me that gave students as many as four different opportunities to redo an assignment. So that means a failing student will take potentially four times the workload of a normal student. Admission requirements were literally removed in one case. So you didn't have to go through any kind of selection. All this, this was replaced with a kind of a flimsy um, advisory conversation at the beginning, right? So basically everybody can come in. But the norms, the amount of students who were expected to pass or fail remained the same. So in other words, I've now got as a lecturer in first year, maybe as many as 30% or in some freak cases, as many as 90% of the students who basically should not be there for one reason and another. And if I fail those students, if I give them a failing grade, I will then have four times the workload of a teacher who finds some way to pass them. Now, in this situation, what you see is all kinds of strange um, approaches, ways of making sure more students get a passing grade. For example, team assignments suddenly become very popular. And this is then backed up with a whole ideology about why that's a 21st century skill, why now multidisciplinary work is the most important, why we have to have um, certainly leave behind this ancient, you know, obsolete system with some lecture in front of a class sending things in one direction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's always research that can be trotted out, cherry picked to support this. The real reason is that it's just easier to take three students who aren't performing, two who are, put them in a team. The two who are realize if they want their grade, they have to do the work of the other three. The other three do nothing and all of them get a passing grade. Now the teacher is happy because they're out of my life. The school is happy because the statistics which are used to determine success and failure, in other words, things like the dropout rate or the failure rate, these norms which were established actually without taking this situation into account, they are then respected and everything looks fine. But as a teacher, you, as a lecturer, of course you know that this grading is not accurate. Now that raises all kinds of questions as you can imagine. So this was one thing I was very unhappy with was uh, because I mean, of course, I'm getting complaints continually from the students who are doing their work and they don't understand why someone who, I'm giving you a real example now, who physically doesn't show up in the school gets the same grade they do. Mm -hmm. So, so this uh, one, yeah, yeah. That, um, so to push this too hard because I, I want to very quickly, I hear myself saying this and the danger is that if you try to talk about these things as a lecturer, that you always sound like somebody whose hair is on fire and people turn off and think this guy is just kind of out of control. He's, he's talking, he's, he's, he's giving extreme anecdotic examples, but you, since you asked for an example of something that may be unhappy, that was one thing. And the point is for all kinds of systemic reasons, you cannot really, um, we'll put it this way, opposing that is going to, have a very high cost for any lecturer. 
that uh, when I uh, subdivide the learning environment in three main uh, categories, uh, the physical uh, part and the digital part and the social uh, uh, part. So what you are now addressing is mainly the, the, the latest one, the social part. And um, I, I agree fully with you, that's the most important one because it's all about people. Uh, and, uh, and even the best uh, physical and uh, digital integration of a campus, university campus, cannot solve that issue. Um, well, that that, I, that has been my experience too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, could you give a um, a very uh, uh, inspiring feeling you got when uh, about the physical and the digital environment of the universe? Of course, you are a designer uh, in these things, uh, mm -hmm. human behavior. And then you said, "Wow, this place, uh, this is really working." Uh, like it should be, yeah. Well, um, I can give one example from the University of Applied Science, the second one I I'm teaching at, was the fact that when I walked in, I saw a very clearly defined, beautifully designed and expressed house style with physical elements that distinguished it immediately from all the other faculties, and which seemed to me to have been very well designed to fit the uh, mindset of the students, their, uh, the, the type of work. You know, there were, for example, there were big magnetic, this whole kind of icon set, which was expressed not only in print, but also as big magnetic symbols you could stick to a door, and which allowed teachers and also the students to play and make a kind of totem-like compositions. So it invited play, and I thought that was very good. It also indicated that at some level in this organization, somebody found it worthwhile to create a dedicated appropriate place for this kind of design learning. So that already gives me a signal that basically somebody gave a damn at a higher level. And that, that is something which I immediately experienced as a, as a difference. And uh, having a dedicated place when you teach design even despite all of the hype about distance learning and whatever, having a place to get human beings together and do a certain kind of studio work is just extremely important. So that, that made me happy. Listen, can I, can I say something about the connection between what you call the social, the world of the rules and the strategy and the interactions and the digital and physical? Yes, please. Yeah, Here, here's the thing, and, and this is what I have a sharp eye for as a designer of such systems. What you often have is when there is dysfunction, when there's something wrong, as, the, in, as an example I just gave, what happens is the facility managers or the designers of the digital and um, physical part are approached to solve these problems. Mm -hmm. And usually they are presented with the wrong problem or the problem framed wrongly or a problem which they shouldn't be solving at all and which they by definition can't solve. So, for example, as I was saying, you know, if um, the teams become the norm, teamwork becomes the norm from the very first day, what might happen, for example, is that the intranet or working environment, the information environment, the learning management system, is then seen as inadequate because it doesn't have a lot of specific functionalities for tracking teams. So a company will be approached and they'll make some sort of elaborate application or sub-application. In this way, I see a lot of failure and wasted money. And um, I often think that the design companies and, and facility managers have to ask themselves, what's the right problem to solve here? And do I want to do this? Because, you know, we, we both know if you are to any degree ethical and genuinely have a client, you know, want to help, or make something that makes it work better, then you're gonna ask some critical questions about this. You know, for example, the, suppose I'm using, giving a hypothetical example now, right, where you make a whole new intranet that allows intense tracking of teams. Now, this is a very um, rich environment with a lot of different work in it, and it imposes a lot of different tasks. The last thing people in that organization want is transparency because the lack of transparency enables them to survive this twisted system. They don't want to track every single interaction with the students. The last thing they want is the accreditation committee or inspectors looking over their shoulder and saying, wait a minute, 
you know, this student seems to have not turned in work in, in three weeks, and that one turns in twice the work of the other three, and they don't want all that. So the, the thing about it is the design research you have to do when someone presents you with a problem, either as a company or facility manager, is to find out what's really going on here. And that's incredibly difficult because people have an interest in an organization which has organizational problems. They have an interest in hiding it or not being open about it. So that's one thing I can say. As far as the physical environment, um, it's often actually not rocket science. And the physical environment is often, I've come to experience it rather as something that is abused regularly, beaten up on. So, for example, I read in a recent research report that, you know, this business of standing in front of a class with people in these theatrical rows listening to you, that's the old world, it's bad, throw it away. This is, of course, utter nonsense. The um, conducting a critical analytical um, session, a discussion with a group of students in that situation works perfectly fine if everyone knows what they're doing. Other situations demand, for example, indeed, a studio type environment with people sitting at tables and somebody walking around. I could be wrong, but that seems to me like a problem which any intelligent five-year-old could solve by simply pushing some tables together and then pushing them back apart and rearranging them. It is not, it should not be the subject of vast uh, conclusions about what is obsolete or not and how what what you know new learning is or isn't all these things a professional teacher can solve in two seconds if you let them but of course you know you have to have the right decisions there and you know the worst thing you can have is once people have cobbled together a space they can work with coming in and redesigning it according to these kinds of principles you know, and, and so, so these are pitfalls I wanted to mention because, yeah. you know, a big danger I see is that um, as facility managers and designers, we are kind of used, misused to solve problems or pretend to be solving them that we really can't and messing up the uh, facilities in the process. Yeah, actually, you are pinpointing now that uh, the whole learning environment is, of course, a very complex uh, system. And um, and to uh, to solve or to improve that system, it's not just uh, one point or, or another point. You have to see it as a, as a whole uh, to uh, approach it. Uh, and so the learning environment, uh, as I said, is not only physical but also digital, but mainly social. Um, yeah. And um, could you uh, mention some uh, uh, do's and do nots uh, about uh, creating such a system and or reshaping it or improving it? Yeah, from you your know, from I... your from your perspective as a uh, uh, professional designer in uh, human behavior interfaces, but also as a professor as a user of of that. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I think the very first principle is. First of all, do re design research. Go in there. Don't believe only quantitative uh, results or research. That can tell you a number of truths or facts, but it doesn't tell you the why. It doesn't give you the big, deep insights behind it. The second thing is, so, so in other words, what I'm saying is go in there and do real design research. I'm talking about things like observing, uh, mystery shopping, contextual inquiry in which you follow people around at that at that place and you find out what it's really like. Um, mystery shopping in the sense of, you know, actually trying to participate in the systems of the place or following people as they try to participate. So the second thing I would say about that is if you really want to find out what's going on, you have to pick the right methods. And the right methods are not to have friendly conversations with committees of people who work there because they simply aren't either free to tell you the whole truth of what's going on. There, there are too many taboo topics often, or you just don't have the time to really win their trust, or perhaps they're just so used to the place that they quit seeing 99% of it out of habit. So for all kinds of reasons, not, not necessarily the, the 
dysfunction of an organization but for all kinds of reasons they basically can't tell you what's going on so i guess my first principle would be pick design research which will give you a chance to find out what's really going on there is the communication bad for example because the technical system just doesn't allow people to send and organize messages or is it bad because people refuse any discipline in their communication? Yeah. And, and, or is there some other reason to give you an example? So that would be my first, um, I guess my first principle of how to tackle it. Um, the second would be to conduct discussions about with the client or the people who in this case i'm imagining while you talk that a university faculty or perhaps the whole university has approached a design company or a person like me with a problem they want to solve whether it's communication or the learning management system or the learning environment um to conduct a discussion about how to frame the problem and which problems can actually be solved you know going back to my first point not not to you know, keep this in some sort of a negative light. A lot of things are possible, but the main, one of the most difficult discussions I find is focusing realistically on what is possible to improve and making some kind of a decision about that. Because, you know, often people for all sorts of reasons just have either vague or exaggerated or unclear ideas about what improvement means, getting it concrete. So, you know, that can be as simple as just, well, you know, if I, if I think about something like the team assignments I was talking about, if I go back in my mind, there's no way that that school or those teachers are going to change that. So, you know, discussing ways of making the teams work better and, and facilities, you know, those teams won't work better because they should never have existed in the first place. Mm. And that is just a kind of effect and you have to kind of attempt at least, I think as a design professional to talk about that, to talk about what is really the goal or the possibility here. So I guess that would be the second one is a strategic discussion about what's really possible. Mm -hmm. And I think from that point on, you know, my advice would be to analyze your research and, uh, you know, to do everything you can to gradually prototype and iteratively design in such a way that you get the errors and the uh, difficulties out of the system, that you don't try to build it and then install it and then hope it works because it's yeah. complex for that. So I guess that would be three I could name off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine that uh, that a uh, real estate manager or a facility manager or maybe even somebody from the board of a university uh, who um, hears this says, uh, no, 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 we have just this this uh, problem and please solve only this one and, and don't uh, uh, try to solve our whole uh, organizational uh, structure. Um, but we know it's it's a system, so it has it affects all. Uh, so you have to uh, make clear what is the system all about and uh, what could be the possible impact uh, or the restraints from the system on is it solvable? Right? Like you were saying, is it solvable? What would you say to such a person that says, no, 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 uh, James, uh, nice, but uh, I only need uh, this small advice and not a, not the big picture. Well, um, I think I would have a couple of standard responses to that. <laughs> yeah, first, share, share with us. Okay, the first one would be um, if I was not in agreement with that. I mean, it would really depend. Huh? Um, I guess the first one would be to try to explain what I think the consequences will be of taking that advice. So if I do what you say you want me to do, honestly, I think that the following things will happen. This will be the bad things. That will be possibly good things. So I would try to honestly give them my perspective about what the consequences are of that. 
And if they then insisted and said, no, 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 you know, we're, we're certain this is the right thing to do, I might go ahead and just do it, having warned them and try to keep an open mind. And I might try to tell them, well, look, you know, we should at least monitor this in some way. Yes. If I had the, and that would be because I had the feeling that they, this was a client who could genuinely be helped. And, and often you also don't want to be too stubborn about your own expertise. I mean, these are people, this makes the work rather difficult because you, you mentioned a facility manager or somebody. This is a person who knows that business better than me. Yes. And who may know things I don't know and who at, at some level I, I don't want to get too stubborn with. I have to learn what it looks like through their eyes. So here I've arrived at something I should have said first. First of all, I think in that conversation, I would try to find out why they are so certain of this. What is it that they know? What, what can help me understand what their world looks like? So that's two things. The third thing I might say is if I thought that that person was genuinely mistaken and for whatever reason, I think I might say, I can't afford to help you with this because I really honestly think there's a great big chance of failure here. And I cannot afford to have a failure of this scale uh, on my record. I just don't risk it. Um, you probably, know, probably that will wake them up and you say something like that. They say, oh, tell me. Well, you know, I've been in yeah. this business nearly 30 years now. My God. And, yeah. you know, I've seen a lot of failure. Yeah. And, Often, the risks I've, I'm identifying come out of very solid professional practice. I mean, this is about human beings. You know, in, in any big product service system, especially something like a university campus, you're talking about people and whole lives that are being carried on in this place. Yeah. And, you know, you cannot solve problems inside the psychology, the organizational structure, or the way people interact, or their culture, merely by changing technologies. You can impact with cha changing technologies and facilities. But you know, you're talking about people, in other words, so that's way too complex to make simplistic solutions for. I guess the um, final thing I would say about that, about that conversation was, you know, if I had the I think I would try to make clear to them as well, if I thought they were sincere at any rate, look, there are a lot of companies that will take your money and be happy to give you what you say you want. And you're responsible if it doesn't work, not them. You, they did what you wanted. So, you know, I'm not that specialist. There's a reason why I'm having this conversation and it's, it, I'm not in that uh, section. There's nothing wrong with that in principle I mean, I know a lot of big companies, but, you know, they say, look, it's not our responsibility. You know, they, they say they know their business. They say they know what they want. They want an intensive application that allows a teacher to track 20 teams at once with 50 different screens. Well, fine, give it to them. Yeah. That's one way to do it, but that's not generally the way I do it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah. When, no, we, uh, when we approach it from uh, the other side, so we uh, have not talked uh, about... Uh, uh, top down from the big system and uh, we knowing that everything is should be integrated uh, and uh, but when you say okay it's too difficult to uh, to start from that strategic level in the whole system um, could you give some um, could you share some experiences in how you can use for instance nudging that you say okay I'm going to prepare the physical uh, environment uh, and or the digital environment to to nudge, uh, to uh, invoke them to certain behavior, to, to enable yeah. certain behavior. Yeah. And then from yeah. there, maybe you can build on. Uh... Yeah. Um, yeah, this is great that you asked this because that's really something I forgot in my answer is, in my experience, people who are focused on big problems or big picture problems often have lost sight of all of the different things that are actually working well mm. and which present opportunities. So I think that would also definitely be in my conversation in my research would be to find out what works here. You know, a recent example I saw, I'm, I'm trying not to name names in this discussion because I don't want to, you know, um, 
misrepresent anyone, but in a recent example on a university campus, the perception was that the kind of interdisciplinary work and exchange that they had, that strategically had been established as a goal, was not really happening. But when I examined it, I found that there's actually some very successful uh, student-owned, practically, programs of interdisciplinary work, which are highly successful. But amid the massive programs and massive activities, they're not really noticeable. And when I see that amid, you know, hundreds of other programs, I see that one and I think that's the tip of a potential iceberg. I mean, that's beginning to work. What we have to do is find out, I hope I'm answering your question with this. I would tell yeah, them, you, you know, do. You do. I, I, I found something here which actually works very well, which seems to be solving a problem you say you have. Let's find out why it works so well. And let's then see if we can extract principles from that. And the second part of my uh, suggestion would be, for God's sake, start with piloting things which are low risk and potentially high, uh, high, high gain, you know, high result. Um, it's a bit like gambling. I mean, in this kind of complex situation, I'm, I'm reminded of a presentation I saw by Nassim Taleb about what he calls statistical fat tails, you know, where you just take out options, as it were. This guy was a trader. You take out options, and one of them hits. But you've got to make sure that you've made an intelligent selection of potential options in the form of little pilot projects. So, for God's sake, find out ways of trying things which don't challenge the whole system or require whole political discussions to be made. Exactly. And well, yeah. it's funny, in all the years I've been working, most of the time we can find them. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's not like it's an impossible dream or something. Yeah. So when I uh, heard correctly what you said, uh, so find things that are already working and that are editing to the strategic goals or the well-being and health of the users and enhance them. Uh, give them some more support and bring them more in, into the daylight and uh, so that they can grow better or more than they already do. And by doing so, you get uh, results probably because there are already results that will be bigger and that will convince people, okay, we have to add more in that direction. And the other one I hear you saying is uh, try out, do um, things uh, that are low risk, as you said. And uh, there are so many programs that start in, in, the, in a university uh, why not use this one in the physical space uh, or this one in the digital space or even in the in the interface between those two um, yeah. so that is also a whole other area so we can okay i only focus on physical i only focusing on the, the digital learning environment but there's also an interaction that where those two meet can you say something about that interaction so the, where physical and digital meet, so obviously yeah, that is uh, you're sitting somewhere and there's Wi-Fi, so there's an interaction. But yeah, uh, for yeah. instance, another thing could be uh, uh, that the digital is helping you to navigate through the building to find whatever you have to find. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, let me give an example from professional practice. A couple of years ago, I was hired by a very interesting foundation that arranges special language and writing lessons by real children's writers in schools where the children have, for whatever reason, um, weaknesses in the area of language. They may be immigrant children or they may just not have a big program with writing or, you know, and this has been a highly successful program. And you have to imagine that they're sending writers into schools who then work directly with these children. So this is a very hands-on way of doing things. And I was approached because they had gotten some funding to try and make the jump into the digital realm to see whether they could make some kind of an offer of the program in the digital realm. So not always with physical teacher or physical writers working in physical schools in that way. That was the, um, the problem. And one moment I remember is when I was looking, I did a lot of design research. Um, I'm a very small guy, so elementary school furniture fits me. And uh, I can sit in it for hours, just watching students, watching teachers, watching the writers work. Before I go on with this example, I must say, 
I have rarely seen something more impressive than those writers. The incredible magic of the way they work with the kids and what the kids achieve and the, the many different kinds of learning going on. I mean, it was really amazing. I, you know, I had a binder full of learnings and notes and, and interesting mental and, and, and didactic models that I emerged with from this research. Anyway, to answer your question about the connection between the digital and physical, thinking about ways in which the powerful interaction between writer and child could be exported in some way to the digital space, I began looking around for ways of doing what I just said, creating prototypes, creating some experiment. And looking across this organization's activities in that way, I suddenly saw that they do special campaigns once or twice a year where, you know, a, a, a big financial institution or somebody wants to sponsor them. So they'll say, look, we're going to have a week long, you know, campaign where you, you know, go to all these elementary schools and we send some volunteers from the bank and we pay for some stuff. And I noticed that in one of these campaigns, they were using a lot of video. And immediately I realized this is a laboratory to find out whether the bond that, it, that emerges between a child and a real children's writer to some degree can be created through something like video, through digital means. They're basically in the room, they're using the video. We can, we can set up this, we can, without changing anything, we can just go in with a research script and we can start to learn what the impact is of these different digital things. We can add a few before and after surveys with the volunteers and teachers. It's already paid for, doesn't cost you anything. And, you know, in that way, we were able to just take something that's existing, but by seeing it as a prototype, add a few things to it. And my suggestion then was, without paying an extra penny, except for a little bit of analysis, you've already got a laboratory here that will tell you something essential about the limitations and possibilities of video as opposed to a live person in the room. And um, which will also tell you something about how much the person, the people who are volunteering can do without the writer present. So there were a couple of different learnings we could extract from this. So I hope this is beginning to answer your question. It's a question of having a mindset of seeing the whole system, all of its facets in new ways. So it would have been very easy to say, no, 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 I'm not interested in your publicity campaigns. That's not part of my job. Listen, if it's part of that system, it's part of my job. And I want to know what's going on there. And, you know, the prototyping mindset, the mindset of exploratory research is what enables me and other professionals to see those kind of opportunities. So as you're saying, you know, it could be as easy as you know, if you see people using a space or facility in a certain way, uh, it can also be finding out where people are experimenting and solving problems on their own. You know, one of the things I've often done is just collect all the little uh, solutions people make and study them. You know, have you ever noticed that in every modern office, there's one nerd who can use Excel for anything from the moon landing to, you know, the organizing the public buses there's always one who's a sort of an excel master and usually what you'll find is that person has put together some dedicated tools for managing things and everyone's using them i often collect those things in city administrations i've collected those things yeah that uh, uh, brings to my mind that indeed there are always uh, hacks around the system because yeah people are experiencing that the system is uh, the system beat the system uh, you hear so often uh, it would be really a great idea to collect those hacks and see uh, if they really improve. And probably they do, otherwise they would be not in place anymore. Uh, and and find several of them and, and prototype them and uh, yeah, make them stronger and bigger or introduce them somewhere else. Say, okay, it's working there, but maybe let us give it a try. Maybe it will also work for you. That I can tell you that I have seen so many I have used those hacks, as you call them, so often as the basis of new functionalities, new ways of doing things, but also ways of making me understand how these tasks and activities look to the people doing them. 
You know, for example, if I see a whole binder full of notes about tasks that were done with students, I can read those notes and I can see what that person is struggling with. What did they find worth writing down? What was the thing they were scared of forgetting? Uh, you know, it, it's, it's really like being an anthropologist going in there into the jungle of the organization and, uh, you know, sorting out what people are doing in there, which is what makes the work very exciting and, and interesting as well. When I try to combine, so the first part of the interview and what we are at now, that uh, we started with big systems and uh, yeah, it sh should be so nice when you can uh, redesign it uh, from scratch. But yeah, that is not that realistic as we both know. Uh, but yeah, at least we have to make them aware that uh, there are some uh, uh, things that are not working uh, that good as it could be, although probably they will be aware of that. For any reason or the other reason, they're not uh, changing it. But to start with the hacking, uh, that um, those people know their organization as the best. We as uh, external advisors never are going to understand the level that they do because they are in the system, they're part of the system. And they found their hacks to work around things to make their work easier or to feel uh, more happier or, or whatever. Um, and that brings me to uh, the point that you are using your expertise also to create innovations in uh, organizations and in products and in uh, services. Uh, how could, um, and how, uh, what could be a possibility to innovate on a small, uh, low risk scale in a university uh, environment, in a learning environment? You know, to, improve, good... to improve the, 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 the core business, learning and research, and on the other hand, also to improve the experience uh, of the users. Well, yeah, that's a difficult question to answer in a general way, um, because, you know, in each university, despite having some of the same pathologies, the, the actual activities they're doing, the courses they're teaching, the nature of the learning that's going on can be very different. And um, so what might be a, I'm just trying to think of a good way to answer this, that what might be a, a risk, low risk way of prototyping your way forward in those situations. I guess I would start by saying, which risks do you have to mitigate? For example, if something is politically very sensitive, you know, I mean, if, if I go in talking like I'm talking to you now about just what utterly, what an utterly bad idea it is to do all this teamwork with first year students, you know, yeah, yeah, if I you, talk about that, I will be thrown out of the building. That will yeah. be the end of my lecturing and designing career. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there are things that might be politically too sensitive. There might be a legacy of failure to innovate. They may have tried certain things in the past and have gotten allergic to them. I can tell you that there was a time when I avoided mentioning user-centered design because the companies had burned their fingers on expensive personas and scenarios and systems. <laughs> and the result was that they were all laying around in a kind of a cemetery on a shelf. And the intelligent and extremely experienced designers had solved it anyway after two days without those things. So you know, there may be a legacy of failure there. There may just be a massive amount of um, things that are risky to change. Think about healthcare. You know, that, that's really the poster child for risk and complexity. So I would try to find out what the risks were that we were running. And then I would look around in my design research. I might even actually incorporate into my design research program ways of finding where we can get around those risks. So for example, I might avoid any kind of prototyping with high profile programs, which are going to become a political firefight. I'll never forget one case, and here I'm really not gonna name names, but it, let, let me tell you, it was a very large organization, a, a government organization. I won't go further than that. And, you know, we, we prototyped the thing that was going to make certain administrative uh, processes easier. I had sort of done a classic bottom-up examination. I had sat next to clerks doing their work. We had prototyped this thing. And um, 
unbeknownst to us, a consulting agency had been carefully going through a very rather old fashioned optimization program for these people. And the sort of thing where they, you know, shave a few paper clips off of here and a few more paper over there. And then we showed up with this thing and a firefight broke out. And, you know, the result was that, um, another department won the fight and, and the project was shelved and people were all thrown out and one of them became a successful entrepreneur with some of the stuff we created. But, you know, so I might try to avoid if the risk is that it's a politically sensitive, you know, thing, I might try to avoid that by just picking a very uncontroversial area to play with. I might also um, look for kinds of facility if it's talk if you're talking about facilities the physical um supports that a learning environment needs and if you're talking about um you know the information environment as well which we should include in that because that's now so big it's like an environment people navigate you know it's no longer a kind of a supporting element in a physical mm -hmm. environment True. you know um if you're talking about that I might again try to look, you know, the, the risks there might be things like people are simply overloaded now and, and exhausted and cognitively so burdened that you can't really introduce a new thing and expect people in an organic way to use it. So to mitigate that risk, I might actually try to allocate some money to a small group of users and just in a dedicated way say, guys, you install this, you try this for a week, it's an experiment, you'll be paid a little bit, but you know, with you 10 people, we're gonna try this. Yes. So often, I find often that companies and institutions treat their system as though it was the free market and people were consumers. That's another big pitfall. You know, that you have to really be careful of that. I mean, students and teachers and support staff and, and everything that goes on in the university are not consumers in that sense. They, they don't have the choices. Exactly. Consumers. They are employed or they follow a, a education and yeah. 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 So, I mean, they're, they're not going to, uh, you know, put, put it, I say that, but you know, if you take, think about something like the system with which you, uh, record the grades or manage important documentation. There you have no choice at all. But you know what you see is that if you have something like an intranet or a working environment and it doesn't really work, what you see is people pulling out their iPad and using Google Forums and Google Docs mm -hmm. and using privately bought services or not even bought but provided services and creating this parallel world in which they're doing all this stuff which you actually shouldn't be doing, especially now with the privacy laws sharpening. But people have to get their work done and they've gotten used to some of the best online products like the Google Suite, the G Suite. Yeah. And so, you know, they start using it. Yeah. So um, this is, I'm, I'm trying not to talk too much now and you can see how difficult it is. But if I go back to your original point, so what are low risk ways of doing this? Well, if the risk is, um, people are overloaded and don't have choices, create some small artificial environment with a new program and try it out. Just pilot it in classic yeah. way. If the risks are political, avoid them. Find something that's less politically controversial. Um, if the risks are associated with resources, with money, then have some tough conversations because people want to believe something's always possible. It isn't. You know, um, there may have to be a room or two set up with new equipment in a certain way, or students may have to be provided with some new application or way of doing things. Um, I think the other element here that's really important is time. You know, to, to think of this in terms of projects, I mean, you need finish lines, you need milestones. I'm actually pretty old fashioned in the way I set up projects. Um, when people start being too agile, I get nervous. I've seen too many clubs of nerds run off with the project, leaving everyone else scratching their head. I 
think in terms of kind of old fashioned Gantt charts with milestones and, you know, is this done and can we do use this now? Will it, will it crash if I drive it? You know, having said that though, with these kind with something like a university campus or any big complex system, we have to understand that it is both succeeding and failing simultaneously always. And I think the right way to think about it is you can move the whole system forward in some good way, but we shouldn't think about making a permanent improvement or, or redesigning it in some new shape in that sense. Yeah. Like, okay, we've got edition 2.0, come back in a year. Yes. I don't think it's like that. Yeah. So I think that quite often you wind up talking whether you like it or not, for example, about the roles people are playing and the responsibilities yeah. they have, yeah. as well as the new thing you've created, like an application or a new kind of a, a studio space, just to give an example. Yeah. Then you have to talk about what people are going to do about it or with it. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Actually, that I think that we are coming to a point where we can summarize uh, that, um, that when you really want to improve a uh, learning environment, consisting of physical, digital, and social, uh, you should get involvement of people, engagement. Yeah. Uh, and not only from the people on the uh, working floor, but also in the top level of management. And for that, yeah, yeah you have to pick the, the projects or the prototyping you're going to do wisely, uh, uh, because you want that, that it starts and that they can uh, create an experience with that. And probably when it works well for them, according to them, uh, it will grow anyway. Um, I would like to ask you a, um, a, uh, a question, a personal question. Uh, can you mention us a uh, aha uh, moment you had in your career, your long career, that uh, really changed you on a personal level? You know, um, I would like to mention a moment which happened in the course of no more than about 12 weeks. That was my teacher training when I had already become a university lecturer, like most design professionals, I was recruited for my professional knowledge. I had never taught professionally. I didn't know the first thing about it. Like most people who are like the idea of teaching and who are professional, I had the illusion that I was probably pretty good at it. Of course I wasn't. And the teacher training, which was actually very good. It was a 300 hour intensive course. Uh, taught by um, trainers who were PhDs and, and master level in, in educational science. It was very fundamental. I mean, it just took the basics, which have been established pretty well through the years. Uh, you know, things like basics of group dynamics, um, how to construct a test, seemingly age-old things like Bloom's taxonomy of learning objectives, you, you name it. You know, there's a few names you always get. And for me, that was a real revelation in two ways. First of all, realizing that a learning environment and learning poses totally different requirements, often counterintuitive ones, to the things that people usually think work. So for example, um, people think an exciting, entertaining presentation is teaching people more. Often it's not. Often you're burning up the battery power in their brains with a lot of elaborate visuals, and often they'll be wildly enthusiastic, but you test them, and then you find out they only remember a couple of colorful stories you told, and they can't remember even the subject. Yeah. So Goes that, that also for the physical environment, because you can also get too much impulses. Absolutely. The physical environment, you know, um, God help you if it's too interesting. <laughs> You know, it's, 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 um, learn, learning is a question of focusing people's minds so strongly in various ways on one or two things that they then experience what's known as far transfer. In other words, transfer to long-term memory. They can, after a couple months, they can retrieve them, they can work with them. And it is incredibly difficult to do. Um, I always compared it to being a combination of a stage magician and a clinical psychologist. You're keeping the balls in the air and pulling the rabbits out of the hat. At the same time, you're engaging individual people in various activities, and they have to all be focused like 
uh, you know, incredibly closely on only the thing you're teaching them. All the rest has to be excluded. And yeah, if you have interesting, you know, extra stimuli there, they're all taking attention, they're all taking processing power. So, you know, and this is doubly true of any kind of audiovisual or computer-based media. That's where you really see the mistake, where, you know, beautiful videos are shown of animals in Africa or whatever, but when you actually test those kids, they can't remember this stuff. Whereas a very old-fashioned presentation with a few simple diagrams and an engaging activity, they remember it. So, you know, this business of a learning environment, the goals you have are very specific and often cause you to make choices which seem counterintuitive to people outside of it. That's one. The, the other big aha, besides the fact that I found out that uh, it worked very differently than I thought, the other big aha moment was just the incredible amount of bullshit which had seeped into educational faculties around the world and spread virally and which is almost impossible to stamp out. I mean, it's really an epidemic, you know, whether it's all kinds of crap about learning styles or, you know, the, um, you know, problem-based learning or whatever it is, you know, well, I shouldn't say problem-based learning, that, that's a valid thing. You know, there, there is just an incredible amount of bad science, which once it got into the bloodstream is still in there. And when I learned the right way to think about this, when I really began reading um, the research, I realized that there are certain things that are just outright wrong and which have become big hypes and which are messing up physical, digital and social interactions at every level. I think the one I would always mention, which by the way, will often get me thrown out of the room, is learning styles. They have been debunked and debunked and debunked and debunked. It's an illusion, but it's still being taught in pedagogical academies. People still have the illusion they see them. They still have the wrong idea of what it means. They even have the wrong idea of the model, the most common model they're based on. So that was a big aha moment for me because after that I began changing the way I taught, um, orchestrating things very precisely reducing the amount I said and did only to the essential thing and designing both the space and the materials in such a way that it created this lightning focus on only the thing that's being learned. And I can tell you that the impact was enormous. I mean, the, the progress made by those students was uh, really great to see, you know, so that that's an aha moment for me was becoming a professional teacher who understood how it worked. Thank you very much for sh sharing these aha mo moments that gave me an aha moment right now that actually I think we should more focusing on taking things away than to add new things because there are so many trends and hypes and uh, you name it that is tried oh, yeah. out and, and uh, even when it's not working, uh, as you said, it still remains in the bloodstream for a long period of time. Um, so the focus should maybe be more Suppose we take something away, what, what is going to happen? Uh, yes. Maybe nobody's missing it. Uh, uh, or add, uh, or change, change one thing for just one hack that somebody uh, uh, invented and uh, see what, what happens when you uh, give them the space to really officially use that hack. Well, yeah. Worthwhile for trying out. Uh, yes, definitely. It's really good that you say that because, you know, this is something which it didn't occur to me to mention, but in fact, it has been in terms of learning design, it was actually designing the materials and the activities. It has been one of my great rants through the years is, you know, you only need the few things you really need. And the rest is all either through wrong ideas or insecurity or it's legacy that you just inherited. I think that's a very important point is that you can tell people, why don't we just take something away and see how it works. Of course, it's very controversial because um, often the things you start talking about taking away are things people are committed to, or and often they're also people. And that gets... <laughs> um, one, of, one of the difficult things is to say, you know, and it's for me or any lecturer, or anyone, is to be told, we think you maybe, it's better to not have you involved here. You know, I mean, for good and bad reasons. One of the... Um, 
the it, the things that I talk about a lot with colleagues is this whole emergence of coaching as a kind of a way of sort of ensuring some kind of success among students and teams and whatnot. I mean, I think that if, you know, that might be something which I know my colleagues wouldn't like me to say this, but, you know, if I look at the amount of energy going into so-called coaching by people who are not psychologists, not specialists in learning, not specialists in the subjects, but are somehow moderators of all this, um, I've seen it end in disaster. I mean, I've seen it just waste energy and time. And I think, you know, get, get rid of all that help and they'll do much better. And uh, yeah, I think here, that I'm going to get a little too controversial. I think, you know, yeah. if you talk about um, getting rid of things, you know, I guess it connects to me that just association here. When you say that, what I see in my mind is a group of enthusiastic learners and perhaps helpers or lecturers, or maybe coaches as well, who are working in very bare bones situations, but who own everything there. Exactly. Who, who control and own everything there, and everything is there for only the reason it should be. And what you see is people falling in love with some of the seemingly most bland and ugly environments where they are just free, yeah. you know, to, to do what they know they have to do. So, I mean, I, I do think you make a very important point there, in other words. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very, very important point that it's uh, all about uh, engagement. And uh, that does not mean that you have the most, that you need the most fancy environment, digital or physical. Uh, but that people have to own that space and that they have a certain amount of freedom to do their things in the way they want to do it. Uh, of course, the result has to be there at the end. And that brings me to a, a summary that we started off with the notion that uh, a system is very complex. Uh, the whole is more than the sum of uh, its parts. Uh, so when we speak about learning environment, that is not the sum of... Uh, physical, digital, and uh, social, there's more than that. And, um, and we ended uh, saying that, uh, it's also a famous uh, quote in the architecture, less is more. So mm -hmm. by taking away and focusing on what is really required and, uh, and going back to the, core, to the core that people want to learn, they want to educate themselves, and that uh, professors want to teach people and want to do their research. Uh, and, and give them a certain amount of freedom. And I had yesterday uh, an interview with a health insurance company and they um, have the policy to bring uh, democracy as low as possible into the organization. Actually, that meant that uh, the role of the, all those managers uh, layers uh, changed very drastically. And, and uh, a lot of them left the organization for that because yeah, they were not willing or... Uh, wanted to keep the, uh, working the way they always did, uh, the organization for that. Uh, but the organization is thriving now. Because when you hire somebody, it is a professional. When somebody uh, engaged in a, in, a, in a university education, he's very much uh, willing and committed to do that. Why should he otherwise go? And the mm -hmm. same goes for uh, professors. They are uh, professionals in their own field. Uh, so they are very emotional involved in what they are doing. Actually, I, uh, what I heard from several, they are even more involved in the research than in, in, uh, in teaching the results to, to students, but they researched. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, that I'd like to say one more thing if we yes. have time. Yeah, yeah, yeah we have. Yeah. Um, in connection with that, another thing I think is very important is to um, beware of a generic approach to service design or problem solving or systemic problem solving the precise domain and its associated knowledge and expertise is critical. So, you know, another mistake I see being made a lot is people taking over service design methods and applying them almost in a cookie cutter fashion to a hospital and then a school and then an insurance company and then something else. I think um, it's extremely important as design professionals in it or, or facility managers to acquire the precise deep theoretical knowledge we need about the environment we're going to try to improve. So in other words, if it's a learning environment, 
I do not trust people who have not read deeply in the area of learning, the psychology of learning, the organizational aspects of learning. Yeah. Uh, I do think that that's part of our task. And if we can't acquire that expertise ourselves, we have to have at least enough of it to put someone next to us who has it and engage them in a, the right way in the project. So, I mean, I think that's something else I would, I would emphasize very strongly about, you know, working in a learning environment as complex as a university. And I personally find the role of facilities, including the digital environment, uh, a very powerful element. You know, I mean, there are certainly ways it can be enabling that we often overlook when we take a too technical view of it. Exactly. There's another famous quote uh, from uh, Churchill that first we create our uh, environment and after that it uh, shapes us. Uh, because there are a lot of uh, constraints, uh, so you can, but you can also look at it as an enabler. And, and uh, what we said during the, uh, several times, even during this interview, that find uh, those things that are work and, and make them stronger. So make them, yeah, yeah. that they're more enabling the, the primary process, the core business of, the, of a learning environment. Uh, so yeah. I would like to uh, sum up and, uh, and thank you uh, very much for your time and for your sharing, uh, your expertise and your, uh, as a designer, uh, pr professional, but also as a user of these uh, learning environments and give us some insights and even some, um, yeah, uh, the, <laughs> I don't know if I have to say it loud, but I, I, the word that came is pro frustrations that you know it can be so much better if fill in dot, 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 dot. Uh, Mm -hmm. So thank you again for sharing uh, everything and uh, certainly uh, one or more of our uh, listeners uh, will, sh will get inspired and say, well, although it seems to be very difficult, such a complex system as a uh, university uh, environment, uh, but there are very simple, uh, down-to-earth, low-risk uh, possibilities to, uh, to prototype and just try out. And if it works, it works. Uh, so again... Thank you so much, James, and uh, you see each other soon again. Oh, well, thank you very much for asking me. I hope the, I hope the comments were useful. Thank you very much. Uh, okay. Bye-bye.